Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, I'm a Senior Policy Fellow here at ECFR, and I'm standing in today for our regular host, Mark Leonard. In this episode, we're discussing Europe's eastern neighbourhood and the interaction of Europe and Russia in the region. The continuing flashpoint is, of course, Ukraine. That country recently elected a new president, Vladimir Zelensky. Could he open the way to any kind of solution of the long-running conflict in the East? But we're also going to look at Moldova, a country that's faced a long-standing frozen conflict in Transnistria, but where we've recently seen an interesting alignment of pro-Russian and pro-European forces. So where is Ukraine heading? What role is there for Europe? And what lessons could we perhaps draw from the Moldovan example? To discuss this, I'm joined by Kurt Volker, Executive Director of the McCain Institute and U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine Negotiations, and Niku Popescu, the new Foreign Minister of Moldova, who will be familiar to many of our listeners as the former head of the Wider Europe Program here at ECFR. So let's start with a kind of big picture question. Um, Ukraine's been a, a hot conflict or a frozen conflict since 2014. Do you think now, with these recent developments, we're any closer to uh, some kind of solution? Well, I think, first off, uh, I would call it a hot war today still. There is still fighting going on. People are still being killed. Uh, It is a tragedy, and it is affecting the lives of uh, over a million and a half people in eastern Ukraine. So so it is something that we can't ever forget or think is somehow solved or frozen. It's a it's a ongoing human tragedy in the you know in Europe. And I think it's important for all Europeans to remember that and, and want to see it solved. Uh, the second thing is that uh, Ukraine has uh, repeatedly demonstrated it is willing to do its part to implement the Minsk agreements. Um, these are complicated agreements. There's not a lot of sequencing that's written into them. But nonetheless, it involves amnesty for those who committed crimes as part of the conflict. It involves a special status for the territory. It involves local elections. Ukraine's willing to do all that. The problem is that Russia continues to lead the military conflict in the east, commands the forces, it has regular Russian forces in leadership positions, it funds the contract soldiers, it finances the civil administrations, it handpicks those administrations, and it denies any responsibility for the conflict and insisting that Ukraine somehow has an internal problem. Uh, What has happened in the five years that this conflict has gone on is that um, Russia has gotten further and further away from what I believe its real objective to be. I think its objective is to have a Ukraine that is subservient to Russia, Ukraine that is once again part of Russia's orbit. But the Ukrainian people have fundamentally made a clear choice for democracy, for reform, for being a part of Europe, for being linked to NATO, And with Russia attacking and killing Ukrainians every week, they have become fundamentally anti-Russian. And I don't believe this can change now. I think this Ukrainian identity has been forged. I hope that ultimately Russia realizes that there is no gain for Russia in continuing the conflict in the East and that we can bring about change. If they do, if Russia is willing, there is tremendous goodwill. Uh, in France and Germany that run the Normandy process, in the European Union, the United States, to negotiate toward a settlement based on the Minsk agreements that that sees them fully executed. Um, But until such time as Russia demonstrates that political will, I think it is stuck. Nikki, do you share the assessment that essentially it's Russia is the obstacle and 
you you know a change of leadership in Ukraine isn't that consequential because Ukraine's position is relatively sort of solid. I'll take it from a slightly different direction, and I think what is perhaps also important, and if we try to zoom out a bit historically, is that Moldova had its own separatist conflict in 1992 with the region of Transnistria, and we've been stuck with this conflict for almost three decades now. Uh, And, you know, in recent years, while uh, looking at what happened in Ukraine, we, of course, in Moldova had a certain sense of déjà vu. Uh, Our conflict remains unsolved. we still have Russian troops uh, on in the Transnistrian region. Um, at the same time, we've been lucky that we managed to very quickly to stabilize the situation. There has been no violence since '92. There were no, there are no shootouts, and there haven't been shootouts for more than 25 years. And in this sense, the situation on the ground is stable, which allowed Moldova to focus on its European agenda, which allowed Moldova not to not to waste a lot of time, you know, managing and trying to face up to a hot war and a a conflict that is burning. Uh, And the way Moldova tried to go about this conflict zone is by building up its own functionality, democratic system, rapprochement with Europe. Problems remain, but nonetheless, some achievements have been done. And today we're in a situation where more than half of Transnistrians have Moldovan passports, of residents of the Transnistrian region have Moldovan passports. Because Moldova has visa-free travel with the EU, they can travel also visa-free to the EU. The absolute majority of Transnistrian exports go to Europe. So we've tried to mitigate the consequences of the conflict through these technical, low-key, but nonetheless confidence-building measures. And yet the conflict stays unsolved on a political level. Uh, Moldova has refused and will refuse to do any type of federalization with Transnistria because we think that this is not in the interest of the rest of Moldova to opt for federalization with the Transnistrian region. So are you holding this up as a possible model that there could be some sort of you know, national process of reconciliation Within Ukraine, you would still have the Russian position, but you could have a kind of de-escalation of tension through, you know, a greater rapprochement and measures to address some of the concerns of the... I wouldn't be advertising it as a great model. It's not. We still have an unsolved separatist conflict. Um, But given that we cannot and we're not in a position to solve this issue, have a grand bargain, and Moldovan society does not want to go for a deal where Moldova gets federalized, uh, we've tried to mitigate that. So we have plan B, C, and D, and that plan is try to make the best out of a difficult situation, concentrate on reforms, on trade, on integration with Europe, and hope that at some point in the future, maybe there will be a better context to solve the conflict as well. And while not having that on the cards, we made a conscious choice not to waste time, not to wait with our own reforms before the conflict gets gets solved, and we've done our best to come closer to Europe, even under these difficult conditions. Kurt, how do you see the the approach of the Ukrainian government differing under the new president from from the approach that Poroshenko followed? I think what I would say is that President Zelensky got elected 73% of the vote, 
foremost because of his commitment to reform and changing the system in Ukraine. People were tired of corruption. They felt that the promise of the Maidan had not been fulfilled of really changing Ukraine, and that's what he was offering to deliver. But the second issue was his emphasis on peace. Um, I think all Ukrainians want peace. They don't want to see a conflict going on in the eastern part of the country, and they'd love to see the territory peacefully reintegrated. That being said, there will not be major differences that I can see between President Zelensky and his new government and, and President Poroshenko's government, because there are only certain things Ukraine can do. Uh, you have a public that will would never agree to uh, the ceding of territory. Um, they can accept the notion of special status within Ukraine under Minsk, but it should not create an autonomous region within Ukraine or a separation within Ukraine. Uh, just like uh, Nico was saying about Moldova, Ukrainians do not want to see federalism imposed on them by outside. Um, they have a cohesive state that they want to maintain as a state. There is a willingness to pursue a ceasefire, to pursue the withdrawal of heavy weapons, to do all of those things that the Minsk agreements say. But Ukraine is limited in its ability to go further because Russia controls the situation on the ground. Uh, there's no access to these territories uh, uh, by Ukrainian authorities. There's no ease of crossing the boundaries. Um, there's a, a military line of control, uh, lack of freedom of movement for the local population, lack of freedom of movement for the OSCE monitors. So there's a fundamental security problem which needs to be changed. Uh, in terms of... Um, where things go, there's a parallel I want to pick up to what Niku was saying about Moldova a minute ago. Um, Ukraine, with President Zelensky's election, has a fresh opportunity to correct some of the issues of corruption and uh, institutions that did not engender public confidence, including the judiciary, for example. Uh, they're going through parliamentary elections now, which will take place on July 21st. If that results in a majority that would support Zelensky's stated agenda, that could really bring about change in Ukraine. That ultimately is essential for the international community to engage with Ukraine more fully, particularly business and the business community. Foreign investors are very reluctant to in invest in Ukraine right now because of fears of corruption and of uh, unsavory business partners and a lack of uh, confidence in the judiciary and fair treatment. If foreign investors can become convinced that Ukraine is a safe and worthy place to invest, it will have a transformative effect on the economy, on growth, and on jobs in Ukraine, and do exactly what Nico was talking about, making the heart of Ukraine, all you know, the, the 40 million, uh, a magnet for the people of the Donbass. They, unlike in Transnistria, the people of the Donbass are not looking to be separated from the rest of Ukraine anyway. They want to be reintegrated in Ukraine. Russia prevents it. But this creates an even stronger pull by the rest of Ukraine if you can see that degree of economic growth and dynamism and progress toward Europe. Do you think in any way that a strongly nationalist approach that Poroshenko followed um, was perhaps to some degree, you know, leading to an alienation of the of the people of Donbass, making them feel that they didn't have, a, you know, a real future inside Ukraine that was pushing them perhaps towards um, Russia, things like the language laws and so on. Yeah, I'd say I would view it slightly differently. I think that people in the Donbass basically were fed up with everything, everything and everybody. They are suffering through a conflict that's imposed on them. They don't want the conflict. They don't like the thugs that have been put in place to rule over them. They don't like the Russian intelligence services that run the place. They don't like Kiev and the policies that they hear from Kiev. It just pox on all their houses. 
that is different from the question, do you see yourselves as Ukrainian and do you want to be part of Ukraine or do you want to be part of Russia or independent? They all see themselves as Ukrainian. And I think that's fundamentally important. Russia has tried to put forward a narrative that if you're Russian speaking, you are somehow therefore Russian and don't belong in any other country or don't see your identity as part of any other country. Uh, that is just a nationalist lie that, that most, in fact, the vast majority of Russian speaking people surrounding Russian uh, Russia's physical territory do not want to be part of Russia. They want to be Lithuanian. They want to be Estonian. They want to be Ukrainian. They want to be Georgian. Uh, so um, that is uh, that narrative. I think is a, uh, a a misleading one that can often then tempt Europe into the wrong policies. Here, uh, we need to see Ukraine as a state made up of constituent uh, ethnic identities, a large one being a Russian identity or a Russian language, but nonetheless people seeing themselves as Ukrainian. Yeah. Niku, um, the a focus here clearly is on Russia, Russian objectives, Russian methods. You've studied Russia closely. Now you're dealing with Russia in a, in a, a professional diplomatic capacity. Do you, how would you characterize the sort of current state and perhaps you know, if you see any developments or changes in what Russia is looking for in its near abroad? I mean, we have seen a lot of opposition and tensions between Russia and the West in recent years over Ukraine, over sanctions introduced on Russia because of Ukraine. Sometimes we have seen tensions in the Balkans, but now somehow Moldova emerged as a as, a, as an exception to this line of Western-Russian tensions, partly because what happened in Moldova in the last couple of weeks was, uh, was that some political parties, uh, some of them with a preference for having closer relations with Russia and other political parties for, with a preference for closer relations with the European Union, have merged forces to create a coalition and to try and fight corruption and fight a certain oligarchization trend that affected Moldova so far. So counterintuitively, you have a situation where the local players, the local political parties decided to make a coalition for, to achieve some domestic goals, to try and push forward with a modernization agenda, with an agenda focused on economic prosperity, and did that by trying to not to fall into these geopolitical cleavages that are eating so much political energy in Europe these days. That's an interesting experiment. Uh, but it also tells you that there are a lot of geopolitical considerations, but sometimes local players also do make choices against why the geopolitical wins. And so far, it has been going well in the sense that the new Moldovan government receives tremendous amounts of supports from the United States, from the European Union, from Moldova's neighbors, Romania and Ukraine, and from Russia, which I hope will be a model that serves primarily Moldova well, but might also hopefully help to make sure that these bigger geopolitical questions are not only focused on conflictual issues, but also on places and countries where the greater powers can either cooperate or at least put aside their antagonism and support a small country in its reform process. And do you think this indicates, uh, you know, any kind of 
receptivity in Moscow to, to making perhaps further compromises than they might have wanted a few years ago? Or do you think it's primarily driven by local issues? I'm not in a position to really know what is the internal thinking with most of the states in the world. But from a Moldova standpoint, what is helpful is that the government has a clear pro-European agenda. Moldova has signed the association agreement with the European Union. It's bent on implementing it further. If you look at the Moldovan trade structure, then over 60% of Moldovan trade is with the European Union. So in this sense, we're not even in a position not to be pro-European. We want to be pro-European and we have to be pro-European because this is our geography and our reality. And it's helpful for this reform process if we can avoid as much as possible uh, geopolitical blowouts from, from other parts of the region. Kurt, how do you, how do you assess the, the Russian stance? Do you see any movement or a continuing hard line on Ukraine? Um, unfortunately, I, I think it's still a hard line. I think Russia still aspires to have Ukraine be a part of a greater Russian orbit and wants to have that change affected in Kyiv. So Donbass is really just a, a tool in that. I don't believe that's ever going to work. I, I think Ukrainian society has changed fundamentally, but I don't think that Russia has accepted that. And so I think there will continue to be uh, pressure and push and military conflict from Russia directed at Ukraine for some time to come. It's telling that uh, after President Zelensky's election, the first steps by Russia were aggressive steps, uh, such as uh, giving, uh, offering to give passports uh, more easily to citizens of the Donbass. Uh, these, these were things, I think, intended to try to squeeze or put pressure on Zelensky. He handled it quite well, but I think it's an indicator of where Russia's uh, policies are at the moment still. You know, we've talked about Russia. We've talked mm. about some of the internal issues. Where would you say that the EU is here? There's obviously been a certain amount of controversy around the the decision at the Parliamentary yeah. Assembly of the Council of Europe. Is this, uh, you know, a sign of pragmatic, um, you know, approach to that particular institution, or do you see this as something else? Well, uh, I think it's a mixed bag, to be honest. There was an OSCE special session on Ukraine today, and. Uh, the EU representative spoke quite strongly and quite clearly about uh, Russia's um, military engagements in Ukraine, the need for Russia to fully implement the Minsk agreements, which it is not doing and so forth. So I think the EU representative there was quite strong and I, and I think did a very good representation of uh, Europe's views. At the same time, you mentioned the Council of Europe where uh, you have a situation where Russia's membership has been suspended for good reason because of its invasion and claimed annexation of Crimea and the gross human rights violations that are taking place in Russian-occupied Crimea, as well as in Russia itself. None of that has changed, and yet the Council of Europe seems to be changing its position on whether Russia should be suspended. Uh, so that's kind of hard to explain. I've had a few conversations here at the ECFR annual meeting with people who say, well, it's important that the Council of Europe's voice be heard and that it continue to engage on these rights issues with Russia. I'm not sure why reinstating Russian membership requires that. I think you can do it anyway. And then backing out of that a little bit and just thinking about it, I, th I think Europe needs to think a little bit about whether it treats Russia differently than it would treat any of these issues anywhere else in the world. 
If you think about Europe, it takes a fairly principled view on human rights globally. It takes a very principled view about uh, international law, about state borders. Um, it takes a principled view about uh, good faith engagement in negotiations. And here you have a country uh, that is flouting all of those things. And there nonetheless seems to be an effort by many European states, if not the EU, to engage and engage and engage despite Russia flouting all of those norms. The European Union has imposed sanctions on Russia. I hope it's able to maintain those sanctions Russia, as long as Russia's behavior that occasioned those sanctions doesn't change. But there is a degree to which I think Russia needs to be held to account a little bit more. I'll give you one example. We hear a lot of pressure from the Russian side on Ukraine about implementing the Minsk agreements. And as someone who's looked at this very carefully, I think Ukraine has done almost everything it can under the circumstances where it can't access this territory. You seldom hear European states or governments or the EU um, denounce Russia for its failure to implement the Minsk agreements. Um, or UN Resolution 2202, which says in one of the paragraphs the need for the withdrawal of foreign forces and the disarming of illegal armed groups, which uh, is still the case to this day that Russia has its forces there and leads those military forces. Right. But perhaps one of the goals that could be pursued through a strategy of engagement and de-escalation might precisely be to allow the further implementation of the Minsk agreements on both sides, including on the Ukrainian side? Well, I don't think there's any uh, disagreement with Ukraine um, needing to fully implement the Minsk agreements. And, and Ukraine agrees with that as well. Um, but let's say, what are those things? Well, it's a ceasefire. There has there's supposed to have been a lasting ceasefire beginning February 15th, 2015, over five years of a lack of ceasefire. Uh, Ukraine has repeatedly proposed that we get back to a ceasefire. And as, as recently as before Easter of this year, for Orthodox Easter, saying let's have a ceasefire, uh, Russia has not been willing to implement such a ceasefire. Uh, another is special status for these territories. Ukraine has passed every year legislation that aims at establishing that special status for eastern Ukraine. Uh, Unfortunately, none of the other pieces, such as security, access, uh, has been achieved. Local elections under Ukrainian law, which is what the Minsk agreements say and, and what the UN resolution says. Ukraine is not able to conduct local elections under Ukrainian law when it cannot access the territory. And so this is why we've proposed a UN-mandated peacekeeping operation as a way to establish security and an environment in which you could have those local elections. But uh, Russia has, again, rejected those calls for a UN-mandated peacekeeping force. So uh, I fully agree that Ukraine needs to and is willing to do its part under Minsk. The failure here is that Russia fails to acknowledge its own responsibilities. Niku, do you have a, a position on the, the Council of Europe question and the broader EU-Russia engagement? Well, yes and no. The situation is that in the Council of Europe, the representatives of the parliaments of Council of Europe member states had the personal right to vote and the way they preferred. So it wasn't the executives, it wasn't the foreign ministry, and we did not even have a recommendation to our parliamentarians. However, we have a situation where of the three Moldovan parliamentarians who went to Strasbourg and took part in the vote, two voted uh, to support Russia's return into the uh, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, and one person voted against. 
And, you know, in a democratic country, an executive under such conditions is not telling the parliament what to do. On the contrary, <laughs> an executive takes its orders from the parliament. So I'm not in a position really to, uh, to express a position here because the position in theory should be determined by the parliament. And for most of my mandate as a minister, of course, I follow what the parliament tells me. However, besides that and outside Council of Europe business, we've been in close touch with our Ukrainian friends and neighbors. We have a lot of issues where we cooperate very closely and we want to coordinate issues. Uh, we both have association agreements with the European Union, so there is a lot of cooperation we do on the European agenda. We've also felt a lot with Ukraine when it has to face separatist conflicts. We also have a separatist conflict, so we understand the difficulty that Ukraine has with, with such secessionist conflicts. And we've also cooperated closely with Ukraine on, on our own secessionist conflict. We've been working with Ukraine to install, uh, to create joint border controls around the region of Transnistria. Uh, we've been cooperating with Ukraine and the European Union to reduce smuggling around the Transnistrian region. And as we speak, I'm looking for a day when I will uh, soon go to Kiev and we want to step up cooperation. Because we live in a region where Moldova and Ukraine cannot not cooperate and there is a lot of mutual understanding in how we see secessionist conflicts and how we want to cooperate on our European agenda and how we also want to reduce smuggling around uh, at our border. One international actor we haven't really discussed is the United States. Mm. How would you at this point characterize the, the US position? Obviously, um, there's been some kind of debate or uncertainty about where the U.S. stands on relations with Russia um, under President Trump. Um, where do you think U.S. policy is and is going? Is there likely to be any kind of um, reduction of, of tension or of sanctions from the U.S. side? Yeah. Um, first off, thank you, and, and I understand the reason for the question. Uh, let me say, however, that uh, the U.S. Uh, under the Trump administration has pursued a much tougher line on Russia than the U.S. has prior to that. Uh, and uh, we can look at any number of things. We have increased sanctions on Russia in terms of the scope. We've increased the reasons by which we've applied sanctions to include Skripal, to include uh, Kurt Straits, to include uh, Donbass. Uh, we have lifted the uh, ban on uh, defensive arms sales to Ukraine because it's legitimate for a country to defend itself if it's being attacked. Uh, we unfortunately have a situation now where every issue you can think of is in the negative side of the ledger, whether it's Venezuela or Syria or Iran or North Korea or nuclear issues or Russian military behavior in the Bering Strait or Ukraine or Georgia. And you can go on and on. That's not a good situation. Under any normal circumstance, what anyone would want is for the Russian and the American leaders to be able to talk and see whether we can solve any problems. And uh, that's what President Trump, uh, I'm sure, intends to do when he sees President Putin uh, in Japan. I have not seen much uh, reason to believe that President Putin wants to change any of these policies <laughs> that he is carrying out, which have caused all of these problems. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it's important that we try to create that space. One other uh, thing, uh, in addition to having a tougher policy and a hand outreach from the administration, 
is that the degree of bipartisan consensus on Russia policy as a foreign and national security policy has gotten to levels that I don't think we've seen for decades. Uh, it is true that Russia is a domestic issue in the U.S. that is very divisive, as people argue about what role did Russia play in the elections and how did that affect President Trump and so forth. Take that out and focus on foreign policy. You have at least 90 votes in the U.S. Senate and probably 400 plus votes in the House of Representatives on issues around Russia and U.S. national security. So there's actually a very strong consensus for this tougher policy that the Trump administration has put in place. So that question came from possible European concerns about a softening of the U.S. position. Do you in the U.S. have concerns about a possible softening of the European position as perhaps it, the Council of Europe? I have votes fewer has? concerns than I did a couple of years ago, to be honest. Uh, if we go back to 2017, I think there was a lot of question as to whether Europe would maintain sanctions on Russia. Uh, I think Europeans' uh, perspectives on Russia have hardened since then, for good reason, <laughs> for the continued fighting in Ukraine, for the uh, Skripal attack in the UK, for some of Russia's other belligerent behavior in other places. Uh, also, I think that we've seen already a beginning of a turning the tide uh, in some of the nationalist movements in Europe, uh, which had been very close to Russia or, or seeing Russia as a as an ideal in some way a few years ago, to turning a bit away from that. Uh, you see that in Italy. Uh, you see that um, with those some of those parties that are now embarrassed to have gotten funding from Russia. So you see a number of democratic movements blossoming again in Europe, whether it's in the demonstrations in Prague or in Georgia or the election of the Slovak president. So I think I think actually I'm more confident in your, the strength of Europe's position today than a few years ago. And Niku, on, on your country's policy towards Russia, is that an area where you see possible change, development? Is that going to be one of the, the issues that's on your um, agenda? Well, there is now a, a, an intensified dialogue with Russia. It's mostly focused on economic issues. Since Moldova created the free trade area with the European Union, Moldova has been under trade restrictions coming from Russia. So now we're looking into ways to overcome that situation so that Moldovan Russian trade can uh, resume. And that's a central part of our agenda now. At the same time, and going back to the question of secessionist conflicts, Moldova is not in a position to talk about a deal on Transnistria based on the idea of federalization. We don't want that. Moldova doesn't want federalization. And in this sense, our dialogue with Russia does not touch on issues like federalization. And it's mostly focused on, on trade and ways to unblock trade links, which is a way to help Moldova strengthen its economy and deliver better uh, prosperity for its citizens. Great. Thank you both very much. Um, it's been Interesting to hear the perspectives uh, from these two conflicting, two uh, perhaps slightly contrasting very, very relationships. Very compatible uh, and friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, traditionally, before we end, we ask our contributors if they have anything that they've been reading recently, which they would want to recommend, either on the subjects we've been discussing or on others. I imagine that you're both very busy. I don't know how much time you yeah. had, but... <laughs> If there's anything uh, that that occurs to you that you would want to talk about, I can go first. It's it's not a book 
that I would advertise as a diplomat. And I'm not even sure I be speaking. I should be speaking about it in public, but it's a good book. So take it as a book. But you know, one of the books that I I, I just read recently is a book by Robert Bayer called "The Perfect Kill," and it talks about how do you insert kind of political assassinations into a political strategy that should make sense. And it's just an interesting book, but it's certainly not a guide for action for any diplomat. <laughs> Mm. Well, I, you know, one of the things that I think is important to get at is people not getting sucked in to false narratives inadvertently. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example that, that I saw the other day, uh, which was about the protests in Georgia. And the headline in the New York Times was that Russia, uh, that Georgia stages protests. Um, and it just struck me as, wait a second. Already, we're buying into a narrative that these are not genuine, <laughs> that this is somehow orchestrated, when in fact these were, you know, dramatic, popular expressions in Georgia. So on the Georgia narrative, I had just happened to see on, on the table the other day Ron Asmus's book, uh, which is a little war that shook the world. Um, and I'd recommend that because it's contemporaneous within a couple of years of Russia's invasion of Georgia. And it, and it was very meticulously researched and interviewing lots of the actors at the time who were involved uh, in dealing with policy toward uh, Russia's invasion of Georgia. And that gets the facts straight. And then think about what does that mean compared to what we hear about Georgia every day. Um, there was a BBC article uh, the other day that referred to Georgia starting a war in 2008 in order to recover the two lost territories. Um, remarkable the BBC would say something like that because it's completely counterfactual, um, but or contrary to the facts. But it's how these narratives creep in that I think we need to be concerned about. And with that, the, the perennial one to read, if, if uh, some of the people here, maybe younger listeners have never read it, go back and read 1984, because uh, it was really a very prescient understanding of the importance of information and influencing people. Great. Thanks very much. We're at the end of our time. Thank you for listening. Um, we'll be back next week with another edition. In the meantime, it's goodbye from me, from Niku Popescu. And from Kurt Volker. The editor of our podcast is Vivka Evering, and the researcher is Jonathan.